You are now listening to Sweep the Rack Podcast featuring Brooklyn Rob and Big Mike. Rob, what's good, homie? Yo, what's happening, Big Mike? How's your week been? All right, man, I got to say that uh, that Shook Ones beat always gets me vibing when we do that intro. But uh, yeah, my week was good, man. Kind of uneventful. I had my uh, I had my first daddy daughter dance on Friday. And uh, let me tell you, that was quite an experience. Uh, you know, probably about 200 uh, elementary school age girls running around screaming, dancing the entire time in a room full of dads who didn't know each other and had nothing to do. So yeah, it was quite an experience. Uh, I'll definitely be back again the, uh, the 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 next year. But to all you dads out there, man, God bless us for all we do for our daughters, right? The things you do for love. But uh, how about you, Rob? What's good? Yo, man, just uh, another week. Threw my back out on Sunday, lifting some heavy weights, and uh, been doing a little bit of recovery. Um, Rob, I know you like to get it in. But I didn't. I didn't know you like to get it in like that. I mean, you got to watch yourself, man. We're getting old. We're getting up there. I know. It's getting real old. I feel super old now. <laughs> Talking about how I threw my back out. Um, a quick funny story, two minutes. Uh, I was in a Monday morning meeting in my office, and uh, my back cramped up on me in the middle of the meeting, and I yelled, fuck my life, as loud as I could during the meeting. So yeah, That's nice. That's that's my Monday sure. <laughs> so that's how my Monday morning started uh this uh today so yeah so other than that there's some a lot of chatter on social media uh i don't know if I, uh, a lot of people have been paying attention but got a, a pretty good article out there written by jeff riggles uh for 11 frame uh so you people out there on social media twitter facebook uh check it out it's a great article talking about our podcast and a lot of other uh media outlets too that have been doing doing good work out there with the sport of bowling yeah, big shout to to Jeff for uh, doing that for us and getting us that exposure. And it is a good article. If you want to know some of our background and uh, a little bit more of where we come from and what our experience is in the bowling world, definitely check that out. But uh, big shout to him for helping us out. And, and listen, everybody out there should subscribe to his uh, blog as well because uh, he is definitely one of the leaders in uh, in, in bowling news, et cetera. So, Rob, your, your week's about to get better. And uh, I think every, all of our listeners' weeks are about to get better because, Rob, you know, we've had some good guests up to this point. We really have. And, and we've, we've kind of been above our pay grade in terms of the guests we've had. But, boy, we're really going above our pay grade tonight. I got to say, we haven't had any future Hall of Famers on as of yet uh, that are lock, stock, and barrel for the Hall of Fame. But we have one tonight, Rob. We do. We Veteran do. of the tour. Veteran of the tour. Uh, can't wait to hear some of his stories uh, about his – on the pro tour, his early days as an amateur, uh, just a real funny dude too. Uh, I spent some time with him at the World Series, uh, beating him on Madden. So uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. So, ladies and gentlemen, tonight as our guest, we have none other than a future Hall of Famer, uh, Tommy Jones. Tommy, are you there with us? I'm here, guys. I don't quite remember the beating at Madden, but uh, whatever, whatever Rob wants to say. <laughs> Welcome, man. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give our listeners some of your uh, your background, uh, 18 P 
PBA titles total, two majors, uh, the 2005-2006 U.S. Open, 63rd U.S. Open at none other than Brunswick Zone, Carolier Lanes, and uh, the 2007 PBA Tournament of Champions. You were also the PBA Player of the Year in 2005-2006 and the PBA Rookie of the Year in 2001-2002, one of the few players in PBA history to win both of those. Uh, Tommy was also ranked 30th on the list of uh, 50 greatest players in PBA history. Uh, when they did that in 2009. So, Tommy, welcome to the show. We're going to consider you a friend of, of the show. And, uh, again, we, we just want to say thanks for coming on and, uh, and giving us some of your time. And, and we, can't, we really can't wait to uh, get into it with you a little bit and talk some bowling. So uh, the first thing that we wanted to ask you about is, uh, is kind of your early career. Because mm-hmm. Rob and I, we, we follow bowling really closely, and, and we have for many years. And uh, – the, at the time that you came out on tour, there were other bowlers who had come out around that time where I felt personally, and I don't know if other fans would agree with me, but I felt personally that I had already known these guys before they came out on tour. And when you came out, and there were big expectations for some of these guys like Chris Barnes, Brad Angelo, who come through, come through the Team USA program. And then you came out on tour, and I remember seeing you early in your career on some of the shows you made, and I was like, damn, who is this guy who, who – puts his hand in the ball the wrong way and I've never heard of him before seen him anywhere before and he's kicking everyone's ass and we wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about that and and what is your background and and where how did you come up in in the bowling game and and how did you get to that point of becoming one of the the best bowlers on tour well, I was pretty fortunate that um you know when you live in a smaller state you know not really known for bowling growing up here um, you know, kind of anybody kind of recognizes you or knows you that, that can kind of get you in the right places. And Jeff Bellinger, who had also bowled on tour for many, for many years and won a few times out there, he, uh, he introduced me to a guy named Lila Venice, who became my sponsor. And uh, he pretty much sponsored me all the way. I mean, he sponsored me in the Mega Bucks, and, uh, you know, those didn't go as well as tour went. And uh, when the PBA got bought in, uh, in 99, they, you know, they were changing the rules to go to the exempt tour kind of went and met with Mr. Levinas and we sat down trying to figure out what the best place for me to go was. And, uh, you know, I'd lost a little bit of money in the mega bucks and said, well, I'd like to go on tour. And, you know, he said, well, I'm told by several people around me that, uh, I don't need to worry about my investment. So we'll just keep the tour. I'll start over. And he basically pretended like I never bowled a mega buck in my life. And when you got that kind of support behind you, the rest kind of falls into place. Yeah, so let, let's talk a little bit about that. What was your experience like in the in the Mega Buck tournaments? Why didn't you have a lot of success? What uh, what was the issue there, or, or you know, what why why did you have that tough history there? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Any good stories from from that time in in terms of your frustrations there and what you went through? Well, the the Mega Bucks were okay as far as bowl, you know, bowling the sweepers. I won a few sweepers, which was kind of the, the thing of it, but. I, I never won a match in the high roller, not one match, not one game. Uh, crazy stories from uh, I lost to a no-thumber on a fresh pair when they were, like, brutal. It was, like, 29 feet of all. And I lost to a guy, Walter Hastings. He didn't use his thumb, and you guys may know who he is. He had, like, four Brooklyns and, and beat me 248, 247. I lost to a guy using a black knife when I was using a, a, a surge. Uh, I lost to a guy that was putting um, – he was putting tape in with a, a steak knife from Outback. I mean, if you thought of it, that could happen. It happened. It was wrong. 
the sweepers went okay, but at that time, you know, I just wanted to bowl so much that I wasn't smart about picking and choosing which squads I wanted to bowl. So I was just down there every day, and by the fourth or fifth day, I'm burnt out. And you know, the other guys are coming in, and they're they've kind of saved themselves waiting for the for the uh, bigger sweepers towards the end. And uh, you know, I'd already been there for five or six days grinding, trying to make you know five hundred to a thousand bucks, and these guys are trying to make fifteen thousand on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And how many how many years was that? I went. I pulled my first high roller in '98, uh, and I went on tour in 2000. So I had two pretty painful years of of bowling. You know, the $1,100 entry fee, and you know, then they added the re-entry. It was just uh, it was it was novelty. You know, obviously the mini eliminator was okay, or the eliminator uh, because it was a cut half the field. So I did okay in that event and the super hanky, but uh, the the high roller, which is where most of the money was, was just it wasn't so good for me. Interest. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I, it's surprising. That's shocking. <clears throat> I mean, especially considering that just a few years later, uh, you had all, you had like eight titles or twelve titles on the PBA tour. If you just fast forward, you know, maybe five, six years from from that time. So that's pretty uh, pretty shocking. But you know what? I think that's also encouraging to a lot of the young bowlers out there who who might be out there struggling a little bit, aren't really having the best of success out there. To to hear a guy like you talk about some of the struggles that you had at a certain level. You know, and then broke through, and obviously have had uh, you know the Hall of Fame career that you've had, and a lot of success since then. Uh, t- tell it. You talked a little bit about your coaching and and some of the guys that you were brought up under, uh, where you came up. Uh, talk about your grip, Tommy. I mean that that was probably the first thing that I noticed about you as a bowler, being you know a bowler myself and, and a fan of the game. What's that about? How did you come up with that? Why do you feel more comfortable putting your thumb in first and? and you kind of put your fingers off to the side and then bring them around. Can, can you explain to our listeners what the purpose of that is or how you develop that? Uh, growing up in a bowling center is something that, you know, you're always around, you're always trying to, you know, back then somebody would get a new ball that, you know, you didn't have each company didn't come out with 30 balls a year. Um, so if a new ball came out and somebody got it and you wanted to go throw it, well, you would do the best you could to throw it. You didn't have the interchangeable thumbs and all that stuff. So I was pretty much doing everything I could to just hang on to the ball. Um, I was obviously smaller and younger than most of the people's balls that I was using. So it was the best way for me to just kind of grab it as much as I possibly could. And then before I knew it, I was doing it in my own ball. And then uh, the next thing you know, we're, we're down the road and I got this gigantic callus at the base of my thumb that if I try to stick my fingers in first, it bunches up with the normal drill. So I drilled a couple of balls with a you know proper fit, I guess you would say. And my rev rate went down to, like 250 so i was like this isn't for me you know i didn't have any pain so i just kind of went with it but for no other good reason other than just literally trying to throw two people throw heavier bowling balls at too young of an age mike yeah he's go ahead, the, key, the key to that story is, is that his rev rate went down i mean you, as soon as the rev rate goes down <laughs> yeah you, you know, know that's no not wants the rev rate going down. <laughs> well yeah. i mean it, it wasn't even close like it, it was i mean it was like half and so I, I didn't feel like I could hit it because I was so the the opposite happened of what most people think most people feel like that they're locked up in it when they put their fingers in the first but when I put my my or I'm sorry when I when they put their thumb in first or when I put my fingers in first I felt like I was locked up in it so everything came out at once I didn't feel like I could do anything so that was just no good yeah Rob I I find it interesting though just how in the bowling community, you have all these little pockets and, and you have different people who are trying different things. And, 
you know, sometimes players stumble on something that might be considered odd, but works for them. And, you know, they go with it and they have a lot of success. You know, we talked to Anthony Simon last, Anthony Simonson last week, and he talked about how uh, some the slavery spar brother suggested that he take his thumb out of the ball. And that's kind of how he began his journey as a two-handed bowler. So, yeah, it's just really interesting to me to hear some, some people's backgrounds in terms of how they develop these, um, I'm going to use the word odd, I guess, or, or non-traditional way of doing things, but that it, it, it worked out for them in the end. So I find that kind of interesting. Uh, Tommy, you were, you just referred to, you know, some of the times when you were younger and a little bit smaller. Uh, you know, I told you I watch a lot of bowling, my man, and I'm, I'm kind of a bowling historian. So I knew you had had some experience in the World Team Challenge shows, and I went back and watched some of those shows today. And uh, one in particular was from Pittsburgh, where you bowled on a, a team, uh, H&B Ball Factory, with Randy Weiss and uh, three other guys. And, man, you look like you're in high school, and you have a serious head of hair. And surprisingly, you were bowling in the two-hole on that show, which I found kind of shocking. But, uh, you know, we I, personally, I love those shows. I love to go back and watch them. And I remember fondly uh, about that tournament and bowling a lot of, a lot of those shows. Uh, what was your experience like in that tournament? And, uh, you know, what, what were some of your experiences like on the shows there? Well, that was the first show that I ever made of any kind. So, obviously, I was a little petrified through it hard. You could probably tell if you go back and watch my first spare attempt at the 3610 when it, I made the 310 out of the 3610 off the wall. It was terrible. Yeah, you chopped but, uh, it. Yeah. You know, it, it, <laughs> it just gave everybody a uh, a different mindset. Or, you know, it let us have a chance to bowl on on a show and get the nerves out of the way, even though there were still nerves, but you had teammates that could help you. So it wasn't just all on you. And, you know, I, the, I actually made the one of the mistakes I made as a coming out of the youth was the first tournament I ever bowled, first adult tournament I ever bowled was the world team challenge. And I mean, I came out, I was cocky and thought that I could hook it on everything. And, you know, there was no out of bounds because I'd never seen out of bounds. And uh, I found out pretty quickly that was incorrect at the world team challenge. Um, I remember yeah, they, we bowled St. Really Pete. I, I, I bowled like 11, I bowled 1105 for my six games and went uh, back to the drawing board. So, you know, for all the kids out there, if they think that, uh, they're invincible to certain things. I can promise you, you're not. Yeah, Tommy, those shows were notorious for being tough. They were gross. I mean, you you couldn't imagine how much they hooked, but you couldn't throw it away from you. Uh, it, it taught you to. It actually taught me to be a, a a lot better spare shooter than I was, and and not a lot of time. You bowl a couple of those events, and you're putting anywhere between you know a thousand to five thousand dollars on the brackets. And it comes, and they're hard, and you're going to need to make your spares. It doesn't take you very long to figure out what it's going to take to make money. So, you know, it, they were great for me, and they taught me a lot about how to learn how to bowl and how to manufacture or how to uh, to grind things out. Mikey, he said the magic word. Brackets. I know you want to follow up. I wasn't even going to jump in. I know you want to follow up. Go ahead. Yeah, Tommy, I heard some stories back in the day about you being pretty bracket happy. I would love to hear a story about like what the most amount of brackets you were in and uh, like how much you like w- would pull on a good world team challenge in that many brackets. We bowled in uh, down in Miami area. I think it was Homestead and we bowled plus three as a team for the team challenge for on Saturday. And we had, we took, uh, we took 10,000 with us 
for a five-man team. And we got back to the room, and we had 47,000 for bowling plus three. <laughs> those, um, yo, those I never, days. I never, I never I mean, those were good days of bowling, though. Yeah, I've never seen that much cash in my life. We literally threw it on the bed like we were when we were. We were 19, so we literally just threw it on the bed like we were watching an episode of Cops or something, and somebody was about to come take it. It was crazy. Man, <laughs> I, yeah, that's a, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, I, wow. That's, I'm just kind of speechless. Forty-seven thousand. I don't even know but how to follow up. Honestly, Mike. Yeah, yeah I mean, listen. You know, there, there's there's a lot of brackets at the Proprietors Cup now, but nothing like that. No, come on. There's nothing like that anywhere today. Do you agree? Uh, 100%. The Proprietors Cup is probably the closest thing, you know, where they, they do a really good job. They put them in, you know, they have them in notebooks and stuff for the live sheet and all that. I mean, Nationals is probably close if you catch a good squad, but you're, only, you're limited. At the Team Challenge, you could play if you had – and they were $15 brackets, so it wasn't like you, you know, you couldn't just go up and say, all right, I'll take 10 for 50 bucks and walk away. It was, it was fire in the hole. Tommy, they're yeah. pretty bold up at the proprietor's cup, though. No, like those scores are through the roof from what I, from what I see. Um, they're high, but they're controllable high because of the, the building and the cross. You know, I mean, we bowled, I've been fairly successful there a couple times. And, you know, if you average, if you average 235 to 245, well, I should say 240, you're going to make money. And, I mean, it's it's a modified house shot, and you're bowling for 25000 so they got your attention. So it's not like just going in and bowling league. Um, they're not that easy, but they are. They're You know, if you get the right ball in your hand, you can definitely throw some strikes. Yeah, that, that's amazing. That's a great story. I mean, I, I, it's it's sad a little bit that there's no uh, there's no outlets like that in bowling, or they're, they're they're that much harder to find these days. Because although the team challenge was one outlet for action like that, there were other outlets for action like that, you know, across the country really at that time. I mean, you think about the Super Hoinky, and you had New Year's Day in New Jersey, and and some of the Mega Buck events. So. Yeah, now there, there's definitely less opportunities for people to go out there and really hit them hard like that and uh, and, and have the kind of day that makes your year or makes a, a couple years, I guess. But, uh, Tommy, guys, go ahead, Rob. Especially the national guys, they're they're so limited right now, the, the tour players and what they can and can bowl, that if the team challenge was brought back, they'd probably ban them from that because they're quote-unquote pros. So, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, it's an uphill battle as a, as a well-known pro now. Yeah, bowling. Yeah, and, the, and a lot a lot of guys aren't used to putting up twelve thousand dollars before they go bowl either. You know, it's uh, it, it's one thing to go bowl a whole swing on tour and have, you know, put up twelve thousand for six to six to ten tournaments, but it's another thing to put up ten thousand for six games. You know, I mean, obviously yeah. most of us didn't do it on our own money, but you know, it's still we were bowling. You know, we had a chance to make significant money with uh, someone else, you know, in the back on, on us and stuff like that. And, you know, that's the good thing about the brackets is you, you would know about the alive sheet. And some people say, well, how do you get used to pressure? Well, we got used to pressure because we would know we're through 250 finals. And if we bowl a big game here, how much we're going to make? And we're in the third frame. So we got seven frames to, to build up opposed to, you know, people coming down to one shot. Yeah, that'll make you squeeze it a little bit too, having 12,000 on the line for one, one squad. Uh, That'll make you squeeze a little bit. For sure. So, for sure. Tommy, really, 
really interesting to hear some of your, uh, you know, your earlier career and background, but we also want to talk to you a little bit, obviously about your illustrious PBA career and, and hall of fame career. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of read off your, your accolades in general at the top of the show to give our listeners an idea, but you know, in your career and, and Rob and I kind of have an idea of, of how you might answer this, but what sticks out to you as, as one of the, uh, as the more memorable moments or memorable wins or shows or even matches uh, throughout your years on tour? Uh, for sure. The U S open, uh, because the year before I bowled so bad there and it probably cost me one player of the year that year when you know, Patrick won. Um, it was a tournament that I just didn't think that I was ready to win because they were so hard. And, uh, you know, Carolier, you need a roadmap to cross that building anyways. And then you added bowling with some of the people that enter the tournament, which, you know, good for them. I'm glad they show up. I hope they have a great time. And then you get, you know, changes once you get down to match play. The lanes just keep down. So that tournament's basically, you know, it's basically three tournaments in one. You have to dodge the others, kind of manage the building, and then you get down to match play where it, they haven't played like that all week. And it's just uh, it's keeping your head on a swivel there. So that's probably the, the most uh, memorable and most, I guess, the one I'm most proud of. Yeah, no surprise there, Rob, huh? You know, I was always the guy but bold that was happy to be there. <laughs> yeah, well, Tommy, you got, you, a, got any good, people there. you got any good crossing stories for us maybe from the U.S. Open? Any, uh, any really ridiculous moments in, in crossing with people <laughs> where, you know, you kind of thought to yourself, man, you know. I bowled with one guy one year in Carolier, and he had the front three. And when he got done the fifth frame, he could no longer bowl 200. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched a lot of those years, and there were definitely a lot of people who were, uh, let's say, uh, fish out of water in that tournament. But, uh, yeah, so. They were gross. They were gross. I mean, there was just there was no, no in-between there. They were impossible. Yeah, they were very challenging for sure. Uh, it's interesting too, Tommy, that you bring up that tournament. I went back and watched that one again today. And on that show, there were four people and, and you won a hundred thousand for that major. So, you know, you, mm-hmm. you won a major. So when they were really paying some serious money and, uh, there were four guys on that show and it was Mike Fagan, Robert Smith and Ryan Schaefer were the other three guys on the show. And, uh, when I went back and I watched that one, uh, when we knew we were having you on, I, I just found it really interesting that, out of those four guys, you're really the only one who is still out there competing at uh, a really high level, you know, and is, and is a threat to win on a regular basis. So I, I thought that said a lot about, about your career and, and about how you've kind of adapted over the years and, and, and still, sta- still stayed in, in the mix to, to win every week. Well, you definitely have, a, you know, a lot of support. You know, I was very fortunate to get with Evan Knight when I first signed him, first went on tour. So, you know, I've had them behind me the whole time where a couple of the other guys, you know, Robert kind of went back and forth. He had an injury and then you had, you had Fagan who was a storm guy that he, then he signed with track and he, he basically didn't have from the very beginning. And then obviously Fagan's a super smart guy and went to school and, you know, he's just doing stuff that he likes to do and accounting and all that stuff now. But uh, I think it says a lot that if you get with a company early on and you can stick with them, you know, they're willing to give you help, you know, when you need it and keep you, keep you in the game longer and always try to help you adapt to what's going on and, and provide you with the things you need to, to continue to be successful. Yeah. You um, have been with that. Go ahead, go ahead, Rob. Yeah. Sorry. Quick question. Um, on the Ebonite quick name, the greatest ball of Ebonite that you've had in your bag in your whole career favorite. Oh man. Blue, blue ice for sure. 
I know a lot of people are going to be mad because they think it's the one or the big time, but I used the blue ice to make so many shows back in the day when, you know, that was just a low flaring ball that I could get left of everybody. And cause at that point, my rev rate was higher than most. And I, I could just throw it in the dryer and it would just kind of roll out. I use that ball so much. I would, <laughs> I don't have any more, any laying around of any ones that I hold tournaments with or anything. I know it would never hook, but I just wish I still had one just to look at it. Man, I was wrong. I, I thought you were going to guess the one. I, I swear yeah, I, 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 I would have you. Yeah. No, a lot For of sure. people think the one because that's the one I used on the on the shows uh, at the U.S. Open and a couple other shows. But to be honest, I had probably I drilled a bunch of those balls. Probably like I drilled more ones than I drilled of any other ball in my life. And I had probably four to ten, four to four. I would say four to ten four really good ones and then six that were kind of inter- intertwined, but I probably drilled a hundred of those balls. Hmm. Interesting. So, so listen, our listeners out there, you know, if you have, if you have one of those balls for Tommy Jones, give him a shout. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he hit, hooked hit me up. up. We'll, we'll do something for it. <laughs> yeah. There's people out there that have those kinds of gems. So uh, Tommy, again, you know, lo- looking back at, we knew we were going to have you on as a guest and kind of looking back at your career, uh, from 2000 to 2003, you bowled about 70 events, and, and, and you didn't have mm-hmm. any title through that time. And then in the 2004 and 2005 season, you won eight titles. And if you take that out to the 2006-2007 season, that number goes up to 12 in those four mm-hmm. years. So looking at your career, my question, I guess, is like what, what clicked in retrospect to, to put that kind of run together for you? I mean, 12 titles in four years. You know, For a time, you – you you were kind of looked at as as Belmonte is today, I would say, from a fan's perspective. Like there was a time where you almost couldn't be beaten on TV. You won 15 matches on a row in TV, I think, and were one short of the record. So yeah, what what clicked for you to to get you in that kind of run? You know, getting the first title obviously makes a, a big difference because you know there's so many times you believe that you can that you belong out there, but you don't know until you actually win. And then after you actually win, you believe you could win and. and Fortunately for me, when I came home from Japan, because I won my first tournament in Japan, when I came home from Japan, I won the, the next week in in um, Denver. So that made it, you know, I got both of them out of the way and everything else. And then from there, it was just gravy. I, I just wish that we had been bowling total pins formats at those times because there's a lot of weeks where, you know, you just catch the wrong guy in the, in the best of seven. I mean, Walter got me a few times. Just He'd move out there playing five and – literally just pound my face like I didn't know what was going on but if we'd been bowling total pins I mean I probably would have made a lot more shows it doesn't necessarily mean that I would have won more because obviously they would have been it would have been a little different on the shows with the bracket but um, you know I felt like maybe I could have made a lot more shows if we would have been bowling total pins events with the round robin Uh, but I mean that was it just just getting but just winning and just knowing that you can win I mean in Japan I was very fortunate in the semifinal match I was bowling in Leto who was already a Hall of Famer and somebody that I grew up looking up to. And I had 27 in the third, and he bowled 213. I found a way to win that game. Tommy, you guys, you and Walter at a certain time had a big rivalry. I don't think a lot of fans knew that. Every time I used to come watch, like, you guys bowl, I used to always see you you and Walter going head-to-head. Would you say that was fair, that you and Walter had a pretty big rivalry? Uh, We bowled a lot of matches where, you know, he – he was the guy that kind of flipped roles at that point. Cause we hit, we'd stop bowling total pins. We bowled total pins and he got out and played five and he was just 
you know, he's still Walter, and it was unbelievable at that point. And then we started bowling the match play where he was one of the straight, you know, the hook guys were having a little more success because we could kind of break them down for a game and, and then, you know, move left. And he was the one that figured out that he could do that a lot farther right. So Walter and I bowled a lot of matches back in the day. And, you know, he actually probably, in hindsight, taught me indirectly how to move farther right and to learn how to bowl there. I'll never forget bowling him at the at the Masters of one year. And I was talking to Dino, who was, you know, one of my good friends that we were sitting around. And he's like, so what are you going to do here? Are you going to play in? I was like, no, I'm going to move over and play the right with Walter. And, and we had a really good match at the Masters, like 780 to like 760. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, so, Tommy, you we talked about the great stretch that you had in your career, and for a while you were kind of seen as a guy who was really tough to beat on TV. And and oh, oh, like I, I compared you to Belmonte is today, obviously. So uh, for a while you were a guy that had like the best look or or the it look out there on tour. And now, obviously, we're watching other guys kind of take advantage of that, and and their game is matching up really well out there. And they're having streaks of success. And, and over the last couple months, particularly, we've seen a lot of chatter about whether or not the PBA is, is uh, intentionally creating an environment to favor certain players or styles. You know, we're wondering what your thoughts on that issue are. And uh, as, a, as a, another part of that question, felt guys looked at you or you knew guys looked at you as, oh, the PBA is catering to him. You know, we're just wondering what your perspective on this issue is and, and whether you went through that a little bit in your period of dominance. Uh, I don't think there's any question that at that point in my in my life that people thought that the PBA was trying to, you know, make it where I made shows. So we were bowling on the name patterns. So the same thing happens now. We continue to bowl on name patterns, and, and, and it's the same every week. We bowl on different or we bowl in the same length in the same bowling centers and certain guys just continue to bowl good in those centers. But uh, I don't know if they're necessarily catering as much. I would like to see it a lot more variety than what we bowl on. But at the end of the day, it makes it easier for the fans uh, to understand what's going on, why it's happening. You know, where before we just showed up and we bought, we, you know, we got out there and you had your practice session. You kind of tried to figure it out. You didn't really have, you know, going bowling on cheetah. You know, at the beginning it was letters. We had A, B, C, D, E. You, oh, we, we knew E was E end up being cheetah down the road, and B end up being shark. It was it wasn't a whole lot different in that aspect. Uh, I just felt like it switched when we went back to centers, where now you know every year at Wayne Webb's place we seen the ball on, you know, forty five feet or something like that, and it, that building just has characteristics. And I don't know if there's any way. I don't know if there's any way if Belmo stays healthy that he doesn't lead that tournament if we bowl on that for the next four or five years. And that's not that's nothing against Belmo because he pretty much leads on everything, but he can lead for fun there, uh, just with the characteristics of the center because they hook in the front, the pins fly around, and it's whoever can get it back from the farthest from the farthest left. Well, that's him. So I would so like to it- see a little bit of that change. Is but, it fair yeah. to say then that that it would it it would be um, you'd like to see that as you go to the same places that the patterns are varied a little bit more in those individual locations from year to year. One hundred percent. I would you know I would love to bowl on you know something a lot shorter there and see what happens and you know I, I, I like I said it's, I don't think it would make any difference as far as the Belmo aspect goes because. He's by far the best that I've ever seen, probably the best that 
who knows what's going to happen 30 years from now, but I don't know if there's anybody that has even been close with the things that Walter's done, talking to some of the older guys like Norm and, and um, you know, Walter and Parker and asking them what, what this guy's doing. Is it, is that what Walter used to do? And, and they're like, no, this is unheard of. I mean, and you just see it. I mean, his focus and how good he is and, it's uh, it's pretty impressive to watch. Disappointing when you're sitting there bowling against him to be like, I really have to bowl unbelievable this week to stay within hundreds of pins. <laughs> it's crazy. Rob, what do you think? I, I mean, I agree with Tommy in the fact that they do need to – I would love to see more variety uh, on the patterns that, that, that they put out on tour. Uh, I feel like it, it's – Definitely more volume. I would love to see more volume, at least on the front part of lanes. Maybe, I mean, you know, go even try some maybe drastic patterns. Maybe go to 50 feet. Maybe go to 28 feet. Go out of more flat patterns. Um, Tommy, what, what do you think of them going to dual patterns every stop? I mean, because, I mean, look what Norm is doing. Norm is 55 mm-hmm. years old. His rev rate's less than everybody out there. And he's, you know, won the last two tournaments. Um, do you think going to dual patterns every stop it could actually be an advantage uh, for like the guys like uh, Norm Do, Chris Barnes, yourself? It, it definitely helps. Um, the The issue with the dual patterns is it's very hard to have dual patterns that urethane's not one lane, which is for majority of the guys. I know Norm's not using urethane a lot, but if you watch the week, majority of the guys are using urethane, which makes it you know, makes that lane end up being okay. And then the other lane, when you end up making it be that long, you end up getting kind of stuck. Your angles get very similar. It's it's really hard to bowl like a, like a 43 foot pattern and a 40, a 40 foot pattern. And it actually play different enough to make a difference. Mm-hmm. What I would like to see is, you know, you, you're talking about raising the volume. I actually think they need to lower the volume because when, when they raise the volume on tour, they hook more. At the end of the day, they always hook more the more volume we bowl on because guys use more surface to start, and they always end up hooking more. Where, you know, back in the day, you go back and look and see guys using shiny balls. If you watch a, the first game of a tournament now, no one is using a shiny ball. So yeah, I just wanted to see what yeah. would happen. If we, if we bowled on 16 mils, what happens? What happens if, you can't, if they're hard, but you can't use a dull ball because you can't get it down the lane? Yeah, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, for sure. You should try uh, bowling the tat. Everybody's using shiny balls. And... <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's the truth, though. If you watch, there there are no shiny balls going down the lanes. I mean, very few times do you see something shiny going down the lane. Not uh, again, Tom, for sure. You, you can't. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Finish up. No, I mean, it, at the beginning, it's it's always surface, and everybody's just, you know, because it slows the ball down, changes the it slows down the change of direction, where, you know, when I first went on tour and we bowled the, you know, the qualifying, you couldn't get those balls down the lane. If you had surface on it, it just wouldn't clear the front. So everybody had to use shiny balls, and then you, you had to do the tricks with your hand to make it slow down the back part of the lane, where now, you know, People use urethane when they're hard, but you can't use urethane if the if there's no volume because it hooks so early. That's just something I would like to see. I, I know they're you know it, it's the PBA is doing a lot right now with the, the Fox thing, so 
I'm glad that every, the way everything's going, but it's just something I would like to see change and be a little different. Yeah, it's a really interesting answer. Thanks for that. Uh, Tommy, we know that uh, off the lanes, you're, you're, you're uh, into golf. How's your golf game, man? It's not existent right now. I, I, it's rained so much here in South Carolina. I got home and uh, everything's underwater. So, and whenever I've been home, we've either had cold weather, cold weather, rain, and we even had snow a couple of times. So golf is uh, pretty much out right now. So hopefully, when we get home from uh, the Masters, there'll be some golf in the future. I guess the traveling is no good for the golf game either. The, the you know, with as much as you guys have been traveling around as of late. Yeah, I got home. Uh, I got home Thursday because I decided just to leave after I had a terrible block in Jonesboro and drove home. But I had I hadn't been home since uh, January fourth, so it's a pretty long trip. Yeah, definitely. Uh, got any good stories you can share with us from your time off the lanes? We always like to uh, to ask the bowlers. You know, what are they into? Uh, do do they like to get around and see the sights of the places that they travel to? So. You got any good non-bowling stories for us or something from away from the lanes? Uh, I'm not a huge sightseer. Uh, one thing I know they did touch on yesterday about talking about EJ and how close the guys are and, and you know, everything else. That that really is true. You know, everybody has their kind of little groups and everybody, but we always check on each other and things like that. It, it makes it a lot easier that when you go out and compete against somebody that you're also really good friends with. Uh, you know, I can't say enough about the majority of the guys on tour. We just get together and you get together with this group one day and this group the next day and you just do something different. You still do the same thing. You know, we're, we're the oldest kids you'll ever meet. We still play a lot of Xbox for near, near casino. We go play a lot of poker, you know, just things like that. And it's just stuff to pass the time that we really enjoy. Yeah. And who, who are your cl- uh, closest friends out there? Who are the guys you spend a lot of time out there with off the lanes? Uh, we have a little group of people. It's, it's myself, DJ Archer, Dino Castillo, Sean Malinato, Wes Malott, Tom Darty. We kind of all travel together week in, week out. And we just kind of flip-flop through rooms together. It just keeps it fresh. But uh, we pretty much have every meal together, which, you know, so we know each other you know, like, you know, like we're brothers and, uh, tends to make everything a lot easier so if somebody's having a bad day they can kind of get away if they want to or you know gives uh more perspective make some of the conversations in the rooms funny you know anything competitive we'll sit around and play dominoes they're into playing backgammon right now just anything to pass the time that we that you know we can compete at pretty much mike you can't you can't have a low rev rate hanging out with those guys like you have to have a high rev rate that's yeah i assume that's that's part of the deal right that's part of being in the club no, it is. Uh, Rob, he's friends with DJ Archer. Should should we ask him to collect uh, collect something for us for talking shit on DJ and inspiring him to bowl well the last few weeks? Or hey, you were the one that you were the one that talked to shit. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna point I'm gonna put that on you. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No he doubt. But yeah, really good oh yeah, he has. He has absolutely. No, we were having a discussion about who whose name we wouldn't want to see come out of a hat if someone had to throw a million-dollar shot for us. And I brought his name up just because I don't have a lot of confidence in his game. But since he was bowling good, I, I, you know, I figured I could take credit for that because I talked shit on him and inspired him. So, you know, when you talk to him, you guys are homies. You know, you can tell him if he wants to hook me up with anything. That's fine. I'm cool with it. Uh, Tommy. It depends we'll on what you're bowling on. If you're bowling on something easy and there's less, oof, he, he's pretty good on that. <laughs> uh, see, insiders Without will question. know you're really taking a shot at them there. 
So I'm, I'm going to put that out there for all our listeners who might not realize that. So, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you'll pick up on that. But uh, Tommy, who we ask all the bowlers who come on, who's the goat in your opinion, man? Who's the greatest of all time? If you had to pick one. Well, I mean, it, it has to be, it, it's going to be Belmo. Um, in my opinion, it's, it's never been Walter, even though he won the most. I just, because I just, think that he couldn't that he wasn't the one that could do the most with a bowling ball uh for me if it wasn't belmo it would probably it would probably be norm or barney uh just because of the things that they could do with the bowling ball and i know that sounds strange when you start because you start comparing titles and things like that but they just there wasn't anything they couldn't do they were never ever shut out and to me that's a that's one of the biggest things that uh i like to see if, if I had to have picked who was going to be, you know, in my opinion, who's the greatest. Wow. Amazing answer. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm, I, I like the answer because Belmo would have been my like second. And, you know, we all know I went on the limb and told, said that Pete Weber was to, for me right now is the go just because of how long he's won. He's, he's won from 79 up until now, but you know, he's been struggling a little bit, but Belmo is, is a very, very close second. So, um, you know, uh, hey, look, like when it comes to that question, there's really there's no wrong answer. I mean, he's Tommy's been bowling on tour for I mean, what forever now, well, like 60 years. I feel it feels like. So yeah, yeah, been out there a long time. Just for sure. 20, just just 20. Yeah, long stretch of success though, man. Much credit to you for uh, for for being able to adapt. Uh, honestly, watching that World Team Challenge show today. You know, like your your style is completely different today than it was, you know, back back then when you were younger. Even some of those, I watched the uh, first title that you won in in the U.S. in Denver as well against Brian Voss. You know, a lot of head movement. I thought much more head movement than you have now, and your pace and tempo seemed a lot faster than it is now. So, it, any any time I watch a, a bowler transition from years before to now, it's always interesting to me to see the type of changes that their game goes through. But as I watched those videos, it was, it was definitely noticeable with you. So, you know, kudos to you on, on, on lasting out there and having the longevity and being able to adapt as, as things have changed around you. Well, I mean, you just, I mean, I, like you guys, I grew up watching bowling and, and that was the way that I learned to bowl pretty much. I'd, play, I'd go bowl league on Saturday morning and, you know, play wiffle ball swim do whatever in the afternoon but at three o'clock three thirty, i was coming in to watch bowling and that's how i learned uh didn't didn't really have a coach or anything just watching bowling and watching styles and i think that's what's changed the game so much is now these kids have access to all these videos and youtube and all and social media and everything where they can just watch that where i used you know it was so hard to get the phs tape to right where you wanted to get it to see what you wanted to see and now they can slow anything down you can do it on your phone and i mean i catch myself all the time taking videos of guys like Andrew and Kyle Sherman and, and Bill and, you know, just seeing how they do it and trying to figure out what, how that relates to me and what the easiest way it is for me to do it. Well, Tommy, who was your favorite, Tommy, who, who was your favorite uh, bowler growing up watching? We all have a favorite. Uh, Marshall Holman and Marshall Holman and Pete Weber. Nice. They were fiery and I just, I liked the way they were on the lanes and how they, how they always, you know, just seemed like they would, they got animated and everything else. And, was something that which at the end of the day is not really who I am but uh at, at, when I was a kid that was pretty exciting to me yeah you like to bring the fire on the show a little bit come on every now and then but uh, for the most part I try to keep it pretty even kill 
All right, Tommy, we're going to get you out of here, man. We greatly appreciate it. Any, any, uh, who do you want to plug? Obviously, we talked. You're a lifetime Ebonite guy, so Ebonite. But who, who else do you want to plug? Who do you got that's supporting you out there on tour? Just, uh, you know, always all the sp- all the sponsors, Ebonite, Vice, uh, High Five, and, and uh, Genesis for me. They've been great to me. Uh, one other thing, you guys, you guys said you guys didn't have any other Hall of Fame, future Hall of Famers on the show. Billy's going to be upset. I know you guys have already had Billy. And, uh, no, he didn't have Billy on the show yet. No, ah, we what, what is he? What is he doing? Are you guys on the? Are you guys on the outlist now, or what? Well, he, I'm blocked on Twitter currently by him uh, oh, over wow. a, a comment. Yeah, over a comment I made on a video that Chris Barnes. No, oh, no, no. It was actually about. Thing. No, no. Well, that's that's a whole nother story, but we'll, well, that's another time and place. But yeah, I made a comment that he uh, he. I, I'll tell the story quickly. Chris Barnes posted a video of his son hitting a buzzer beater in basketball. And uh, he posted the video and, and Belmonte went on and commented on it. And Bill went on and commented on it. Very nice comments. And then uh, I went on and my comment was way more clutch than dad. And yeah, that, that got me blocked. <laughs> Well, so. now that you said that, talking about other sports, you need to get uh, if if you ever get Belmo, ask him about his his bet with uh, DJ, myself, and Mookie about that he can hit a ninety-five mile an hour fastball. So we have no, a nice little wager no. there that's coming up. More breaking news, think, Rob. Because he can uh, hit a yeah, cricket. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll de- we'll definitely ask him about that for sure. But uh, yeah, we haven't had Bill on yet. He he has high standards, Tommy. You know, Bill. You know we. We had to uh, reach certain plateaus before he was even willing to discuss coming on with us. So uh, I think you can look for him in the near future. But, uh, yeah, we want to get the highest caliber bowlers we can. So if we can get Tommy Jones, we would definitely bump Bill O'Neill for a Tommy Jones. Right, Rob? I mean, you know, I Care, mean. Careful how you answer that, Rob. You've been friends with him a lot longer. I know. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to plead the fifth here. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to. I think we should get a debate podcast. one week and have like Bill, myself, Barney, and, and Belmo on. We'll just have a debate one week, and we'll just make the show an hour, and we'll just have a good time. Oh, I like oh, it. Man, it's a dream show for us. Tommy, listen, we greatly appreciate your time, man. I, I think it was a great interview. Our fans will enjoy. Good luck the rest of the year. Safe travels, man. Uh, we, we hope to see you have a lot of success out there. And, again, we just want to thank you for coming on. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, Tommy, appreciate All right, Tom. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. All right, Thanks, man. Tom. Take it easy. Rob. That was a great interview. Man, uh, people drop gems, Rob. People drop yeah. gems. I mean, it, it, uh, see, this is, honestly, this is why we wanted to do this show, because the, I think the longer format of discussion with, with these guys and giving them some time to talk, uh, you, you really get some gems. What, what, what do you want to go over there? What, what, what struck you in that interview? Um, I wish I was bowling the World Team Challenge and had a decent look in that squad that they bowled and was in twenty thousand miles in brackets. I guess that would be. Uh, nice. Could you imagine if we like if it would have been like that when when somebody like Bill that we're good friends with was was at you know at their height of amateur bowling? I mean, if we could have been running them up like that, making that kind of money. Yeah, I, I guess his one of his points was the fact that you have to put up twelve thousand. Now, I, I, I don't know about you, but even with my peak of the high rollers and, and bowling in Brooklyn, I, I don't think my sponsor would have ever put up $12,000 like on anything. So, uh, you know, that's, I mean, I'm talking a lot of money, but I guess one of my other uh, 
you know, point or, or aspects or points that I took out of that interview was the fact of the variety of oil patterns that he wants to see more of that used on the PBA. I think that's a great point, uh, especially when they go back to certain houses and, you know, I mean, Hey, look, valid point, right? You get a, a Belmonte who just as an example beats up the Wayne Webb house and then they keep using the same pattern when they go back there, you know, I mean, it's almost like a given that Belmonte is going to strike and going to lead. Uh, so I think that's a valid point, and I really feel like the PBA needs to sit back uh, in the off in the off season and take a look at the variety of patterns that they're using. Yeah, when he said that, when and and I found that to be a really interesting answer as well. I probably would have pointed out the same thing, but when he said that, I, I actually was thinking about several World Series. You know, the World Series of bowling is coming up next week, and I was thinking about several World Series of bowlings where it just seemed like all the patterns played the same and played very similarly. Uh, no matter what was point. I mean, and it's just to me, it's just to the naked eye watching on, on extra frame then or flow bowling now. But uh, yeah, very interesting answer there from him in terms of, uh, of, of what he would like to see or, or how he thinks the, the lane conditions can, can influence uh, who's going to have repeated success. I, I also found it really interesting that he felt there were guys that thought they were set up for him. When, when he was dominating and, and, and really making shows and on a regular basis. And I, I found that really interesting as well, just that uh, this isn't the first time that there's been that feeling for, for guys on tour that one person or one style or one way of throwing it is being favored. Well, t- Tommy was like the two-handed bowler before the two-handed bowler back yeah. in that stretch. I mean, he could outhook everybody. And it wasn't even close. So now, crazy to think about. Now he's got these, you know, two-hander and these high rev rate guys like EJ Tackett, who now are younger and they have a higher rev rate than Tommy does. So it's, I can't imagine when like five years, I mean, what's going to be next? Like three-handers? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just crazy to think about. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, all right, Rob. So moving on, another great interview. Uh, so we'll, we'll try and continue to provide the listeners with these uh, opportunities to get some in-depth interviews and ask some of these uh, questions to, to, to the top bowlers out there. But uh, definitely another good one in the books for us. So, Rob, moving on, uh, we had the PBA Jonesboro Open this week kind of wrapping up, a, I guess you could say, a, a section of the tour this year where, you know, there was a four or five weeks in a row now where they've they've been traveling from, from spot to spot and had some shows, live shows. They're going to take a break. That The tour is actually off this week. Uh, there is a show being aired on Sunday. I, I think it's at 10, 10 p.m., if I'm correct. Uh, it's going to be the World Bowling Tour Finals. So not a live show. This was a tape show. Actually, Anthony Simonson, who we interviewed last week, told us all, make sure we watch that show. We might see some things of interest on there. He, he said he wanted to clue us in. So mm. that's going to be a tape show that they're airing next week. But this week kind of wrapped up this first leg of the PBA tour, I guess you could say. And uh, PBA Jones Barrow open. So let's talk about the show, Rob. Uh, personally, I, I felt it was the worst show of the year in general. I, I just really didn't think it was that great of a show. What were your thoughts? I felt like it wasn't a great show. Uh, I felt like it just the the matches kind of seemed like they were out already by like the sixth or seventh frame. I don't think there were any close matches, so I feel like that was a a hurt on the show. Um, you know, I don't think 
Mike, now correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any shot went to the 10th frame. Any match went to the 10th, correct? I don't believe so. So, you know, just looking back, the, the first match between uh, Prather and Shota was a 10-pin match. But, yeah, that match, I mean, was kind of over by the 7th or 8th frame. Shota made a little bit of a run towards the end, but Prather was never in doubt in that match. The second match was a 40-some pin victory. Third match was a 15-pin victory. But, again, uh, really, it, it didn't seem like that match came down to the 10th frame. And then the final match, obviously, was, you know, a blowout, 212 to 164 in favor of Duke. So, uh, yeah, what, do you, what are your thoughts there? I have some strong, strong thoughts on the fact that I really think that the PBA on shows like this that aren't majors should go to a, a three-match show and try to do a little bit of showcasing on their pros. And, for example, a Shota Kowazawa, Kowazawi, I hope I said that right. Um, you know, this guy's interesting. I mean, he's a four-time JPBA Triple Crown winner, and he owns 17 JBA titles. This guy is like the Pete Weber of Japan. He, they mentioned a little bit, Randy, I know, talked about a little bit on the show about how this guy – you know, sacrificed a lot coming over to this country and, and kind of competing, and he makes the show. But I, I'd really like to know more about this guy. He's like a, like, he's like a mystery. Like this, and it, obviously, this guy's a bowler. I mean, you know, he's got a little bit of an orthodox style. Uh, but, I mean, this guy's a player, right? And this guy's dominating Japan, it seems. But they didn't really do a whole lot about him. So as, you know, somebody who's watching as a casual fan – and I'm watching this new, this new guy come in. I want to know more about him. Like, w- w- what sacrifices did he make? Where did he, you know, how did he, like, just kind of, like, just, I want to know more. I want to, I want to relate to this guy. And I just feel like it, almost sometimes they, the PBA, they just go through the motions of, of television, of just going through the matches. Yeah, he's only 30 years old, too, which I found interesting. He seems like he's won a lot in Japan for just being 30 years old. But, uh, yeah, I don't know, Rob. I I guess I could kind of see where you're coming from, where they should take some time from the actual matches to promote the players a little bit more. I guess that's your point. Um, I, I, I agree with that. I think that you really don't get to know the players very much throughout the show. Uh, what, what do you think about their efforts to try and do that somewhat uh, through flow bowling? Uh, you know, I've noticed recently they've, they've been seem like they've been trying to uh, promote that more and, and kind of cover that aspect of it from the, the, the flow bowling side. What do you think? I think it's a start, but I, I really think that TV is where they're going to get, I mean, all of their audiences, you know, the, the people like us are going to watch Flow Bowling. These are the, the middle to diehard fans, right? So we're going to, the diehard fans are going to do our research on the internet and we're going to learn. We're going to ask questions to people we know that maybe bowl or know this guy. We're going to find out info because that's, you know, what we want to, we want to know about this guy. But the casual fans that are on TV that are just, you know, like tune in once a week that aren't on Flow Bowling, that don't pay the subscription, I mean, this is a, a national spotlight for them to showcase their pros, and I think they need to, uh, you know, do a, do a, do a better job of doing that. Um, and if I know if anybody from the PBA is listening or USBC, I always had this idea that the PBA should do something like the UFC did with their um, with Spike, where they should put like fifteen or twenty mixing amateurs and pros in a house, 
and they should have them both for like hundred or thousand or two hundred thousand dollars and let these guys showcase who they are open bar get some poker tables and you know let's learn about these guys on a on a different kind of show than just them bowling matches i don't know just to kind of always a idea i wanted to see the, the pba or you know any bowling outlet do it i'm not sure there'd be a market for that show rob gotta be honest with you you don't I'm think not, so with all the crazy with all the crazy bowlers out there? You don't think you put some crazy ass amateur bowlers or some some pros in a in a house and and and, and give them all you can eat drinks and you don't think that would be successful? I don't know. I think it might work. No, nah, I don't know about that. <laughs> okay, gotta, gotta, gotta disagree with you there. Uh, yeah. So Rob Duke wins his 40th title back to back. Crazy. Is he the amazing? Man? What's going on? Is he the most versatile? How's he going to be remembered? Is he going to be remembered as the GOAT? Tommy Jones brought his name up in the discussion of the GOAT. Is he going to be remembered as the most versatile player of all time? Is he going to be known as the player who won over the, the longest period of time, you know, decades-wise, et cetera? How, what do you think, Rob? How, how does this, these recent wins impact the way bowling history is going to view Norm Duke? I mean, it's not hurting him, that's for sure, right? Uh, versatile, yes, 100%. He's the most versatile bowler ever to step foot on the lanes. You know, um, the late, great Earl Anthony is up there and, and uh, as the GOATs. I mean, but how often did you see him play right a five or right a ten? You, I mean, I don't really re- ever recall Earl, like, sl- slow hooking the lane. I mean, he never needed to because he was so accurate. Walter, same kind of thing. You know, he, he's very good at five. Uh Norm Duke, man. I mean, this guy, he could play five. He could slow hook 25. Uh, I, I've seen it personally. I mean, he, I bowled the U.S. Open when I was a kid, and he was coming on the pair right after me. We had the same cross, but I would watch him. He was playing the one-two board, Mike, and striking. Next pair, he would throw one shot. Then Mike is look. He'd move out to 20. He'd move into 20, slow hook the lane, 230. Go back to the next pair, go back to one and two. I mean, this guy is is unbelievable and yes i do think he's a versatile one of the most versatile players or if the versatile player ever to, to play, ever to bowl and i also think that he, yes i mean he's getting close to being passing in my opinion pete as the goat uh his career is not over he's not he's not even done yet like there's a lot he's got a lot more left in him so i mean what do you think mike yeah it's funny like a couple of weeks ago he said on flow bowling you know they had a video up and he was talking about how he was sure that he would win again on the PBA tour. And then he won. And this previous week they had up there that, well, now I think I'm going to win 43 is the goal to match Earl. And, you know, I just found that funny. I mean, it's obviously like his goals shifted. Right. And then he goes out and wins this week again. Uh, Yeah. But here's, here's the thing though, to me, Rob, like if we're talking the Mount Rushmore of bowling, Mm. Okay. And and we have to choose four four people that are going on the Mount Rushmore bowling. All right. Does does Norm Duke make that Mount Rushmore for most people? For probably most I mean, people or is he right there, you know, at yeah. like one of the first one or two guys left off? You know, because to me, you know, if you're talking Mount Rushmore bowling, uh I, you, you kind of have to start out with Dick Weber and, and then perhaps go, if nothing else, if not even for the performance side of it for Dick Weber, 
for many, many years in America, Dick Weber was the name that a lot of people associated with bowling. Mm. Right. So right. to me, you got to put Dick Weber up there. You have to put Earl Anthony up there because he yeah. was the top title holder for a long time. Right. Yeah. Earl is for sure you, up there. Who? Oh, Earl yeah, Anthony Earl. is for sure. Oh, yeah. Earl's definitely up. Then you have to put Walter Ray up there. Yeah. Because he was the type, top title holder for a long time and one in many decades. Then that fourth spot becomes really hard. There, there could be a lot of debate. But, you know, you already said it yourself. You feel like Pete is the GOAT. So clearly Pete has to go on there for you. Yes? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I, I would probably tend to agree. You know, and yeah, to me, I, I'm not sure that Norm Duke makes, makes that type of, uh, you know, Mount Rushmore bowling. But I think we both agree that if he doesn't make it, he's probably right that maybe one of the next guy, if not the next guy, one of the next two or three guys outside of that. Yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first thought about this, this answer, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't have Norm as my top four. Yeah, me either. And it's kind of interesting. Does he deserve it, though? Does he deserve it? The guy's still winning. You know, he's still getting it done. Uh, we'll have a conversation six months from now, and maybe we'll, he'll, he'll uh, carve his uh, head on that uh, on that that rock. Yeah, well, listen. I mean, isn't he in the isn't he in the conversation for Player of the Year now? He is, which is incredible. Absolutely yeah, I, incredible. I believe, I believe that he is too. Rob, you you have a hot take here that you want to share with everybody. You know, is is Norm Duke winning? Uh, how does that make you feel in terms of the PBA? I think it actually hurts them long-term, him beating Simonson. It wasn't the fact that he won. It was the fact that he beat Simonson. Uh, the reason that's – I know a lot of people probably going to disagree with, with, that, with that take, but I think the future of the PBA is Simonson. The kid's 22 years old. He, he's coming off you know, a major victory a few weeks ago, and you know him losing the way he lost doesn't help the PBA. Uh, it almost kind of, I don't know if there's any WWE fans out there, but it kind of reminds me of like them just giving the belt to John Cena and him winning at WrestleMania. It's like nobody, it's like, oh yeah, Cena won again. Like I kind of felt Norm last week had his moment. He won his major. It was a great, great victory. I, 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 I loved it. And then him winning this week was kind of like, okay, you, you won your major, you know, it was awesome show, but let's almost like, pass the torch now to, to the young guys, the Tackets and the Simonsons. So as the PBA, you probably want those young guys winning, you know, and that's how, you know, pe- that's how fans stay interested is when the young guys are winning and, you know, and, and I just kind of felt like it might've hurt the PBA a little bit. I, I don't know what your take on that, Mike, is, but. I'm going to agree with you. Me. I'm going to agree with you, but I'm going to come from a different perspective a little bit. So I, I kind of do agree that you don't, and, and listen, I'm not hating on Norm Duke. We're, we're all Norm Duke fans, right? Like, yeah, love you, you know, he's one of the greatest ever. But for the position that the PBA is in right now, I'm not sure it's the best look to have a 55-year-old guy as one of the guys who's in the running for, you know, your player of the year award, so to speak. You know, like we just said, he's he, if you voted today, he would definitely be one of the top guys, if not the top guy. And, uh yeah, it's it's. I just don't think it's a real good look. You know, we're we're they're at a point where they just switched over to Fox, and I feel like they're trying to generate new viewership. And I don't know a ton about marketing, but I know that the most coveted uh, viewership is like that eighteen to 
to 40 range or something around there. So yeah, to, to still have the old guard coming and, and asserting themselves and, and winning at that type of age, again, as a bowling fan, as a PBA fan, great. I love to see it, but in terms of pushing the sport forward and if if we're asking, is it, is it good for the PBA as a brand? Uh, I'm not so sure that it's that great, but the other thing that, that I find interesting, Rob, is, you know, you, you've had all this kind of bitching and moaning over the last few weeks about the lane conditions. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about it on the show and, and we've been in, involved in some discussions in, on social media, but, you know, come on, look at what this guy's doing. You know, look, look at how this guy's getting it done. So how, how can this guy be getting it done? And, you know, other guys are, are insinuating that it's impossible to get it done against the current competition, given the this you know current set of circumstances. You know, Norm Duke is getting it done. I feel like anybody should be able to get it done out there. He's one of the oldest guys with the lowest rev rates, and he's getting it done out there. What do you think about that? I think that's what's probably helping him succeed. Uh, the dual patterns. It's not a coincidence that Norm won two titles on two dual pattern tournaments. I mean, with his versatility and how he can go straight without using urethane and go straight on the long patterns too. I mean, it was, to, it was an advantage instead of it's hard for a guy uh, like a two hander or even a guy with a high rev rate to play his angles in front of him on the left lane and then have to play his angles to the right with a urethane on the right lane. Um, you physically, you're changing your shot every other lane, but Norm looked like he, I mean, he wasn't changing anything physically. He just was changing a little bit of his, maybe his ball that he was throwing and his, the lines he was playing, but he would physically didn't have to do a whole lot of, of changing in his approach. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can agree with that. You know, I definitely think that him being more versatile and the dual patterns probably played into it, but my part more so, my point more so, Rob, is just that, listen, if he can figure out a way to get it done, most of these guys should be able to figure out a way to get it done, right? That, that's, yeah. that's mainly what I'm saying. If, if Duke can work it out and, and he can, you know, uh, stay with it and, and find a way to win again, most of these guys should be able to find a way to win. And, and he's not just finding a way to win. Now it seems like he's, you know, competitive and somebody, again, that we have to watch regularly you know to see uh what whether he's going to be uh continuing his his current hot streak so uh rob last thing to talk about from the show i guess is just uh we wanted to clarify like the the baby shark dance is kind of like unacceptable on the show right yeah i can't do it i mean you even talked about it a few minutes ago about target audience and this has bothered me all day i don't know why mike but it really it really did is everybody hands. i can't do it I can't do it. I cringe every time they do it. And it's like, and I mean, the baby, really the baby shark dance, whoever is running that music or is in charge of like hyping the crowd up is not doing a very good job. Uh, And I would tell them that if they were sitting right next to me right now, you're not doing a good job hyping this crowd up. Like you want to hype this crowd up? Like, I, you know, I don't know, Mike, what do you, you, you'd be a great hype guy. What do you think? How, how are you going to get you, your baby shark dance? I mean, really? Like, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it kind of relates to our conversation last week where we talked about what kind of environment the show should shoot for and, and what it should be. I mean, you can only create a hype environment in a place where people want to get hype, right, and where people expect to get hype. So I think it's kind of forced, and I think that's how it comes off, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's that great. Uh, personally, I don't really want to see that kind of forced hype environment on a PBA show. Like I said last week, I, I kind of want to see a more um, a more Maybe. relaxed environment, more natural environment. I guess you could say more would action. You say like the, would you say like the like, league started? Would you say like the PBA league, like Maine? I mean, that's not a forced type. No, it, no, no. All right, so so I don't I don't need all the all the costumes. I don't need all the pageantry and dancing down the lane and all that. I don't need all that. I don't, but I do like, I do like people generally standing around. I like, you know, people with drinks in their hands as they're standing around. I like the kind of chatter going on between the frames in the crowd. I I, I like that environment. I do. I think that, you know, it's, it's a good environment for bowling. It just works. And, and I told you, I think that bowling fans know when the time to get hype is and when is it, you know, you can't force a crowd to get hype in the beginning of a game. When, when, you know, you really don't know how the game is going to play out. Look at yesterday. A lot of those matches, they were out. They were out. They were, the matches were done halfway through the match. And, and you talked about it earlier where you'd like to see them cut the matches down. You know, I, I understand it's, it's uh, an argument of like a live show versus a tape show or an edited show. And I think back to these last few years where they have had the edited shows and, yeah, to me, what they should have been doing at that point is they should have been editing the shows to where if a match was out, then you weren't going to see much of that match, and they would use that time to talk more about the players as opposed to cutting a match from the show and, and using that extra time. But, uh, yeah, I definitely think that playing stuff like the Baby Shark Dance and Everybody Clap Your Hands, it comes off as a little forced, and they definitely should try something different with the environment of the show. Take a risk. Do something. I mean, I mean, just don't same old. Like, that's what I feel like it is. I feel like it's the same old, same old. Like, all right, well, this is what we do. You know, we come in and we right. play music. And we get people like to going, clap. It's like going through the motions, Mike. Like, they just kind of went through the same motions. And uh, and my last point on this is, you know, I mean, go to like an NBA game or an NFL game and see what they do in between timeouts. And, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you get the dog with the Frisbee out in the lanes by any means, but. Um, you know, play House of House of Pain, jump around. I mean, play play some some you know some rocky music. I don't know. Play some. Yeah, some have have a couple people have a couple people out there to throw some T-shirts in the crowd and, and get them hyped up in that way, right? Get right. them excited. About that. I mean, you could even bring in some of the some of the um, bowling ball companies and do some giveaways like that. I mean, I'm sure fans would love that if uh, if they were giving away products during the show you know to the fans that are there so i listen we 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 could come up with ideas all night about how to improve it right and how to do it better that that's above our pay grade if the if the pba wants to wants to pay us for that though no doubt reach out to us like we're more than willing to uh to consult but uh but yeah i i do agree rob i think it kind of feels forced and and it's not really going to match up with the market that they're trying to reach you know, we can reach old people already, right? Old, old people generally are the ones who are into bowling. Any bowling crowd you look at is going to be, I think, is going to skew a little bit older. 
But yeah, we need to attract that younger crowd and, and, and do something different. But this is definitely a good topic for us to discuss down the road when, uh, when the PBA tour kind of the action calms down and we have a little bit more time to, uh, to get into some of these topics that we want to delve into. So we'll definitely, uh, put that one on the back burner and, uh, and talk about it a little bit more as we go forward. Well, Mike, if, uh, if they, if they're looking to reach the age range of uh, two to six, the baby shark dance is definitely the way to go. Oh, let me tell you, I told you, I went to the father daughter dance and they played baby shark dance twice. And, you know, my daughter's six and it was probably kids that were between like six and maybe 10. How hype, how hype did that get though? When the baby shark dance came on, was it hype? It was it was mad hype. I mean, it was it was it was way more hype than a PBA show. I'll tell you that. I knew it. Uh, I knew it. So yeah, but uh, interesting, interesting. But we'll definitely table that discussion for now and bring that up on a later show. So, Rob, that's kind of all we got for the listeners this week. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, hope you enjoyed our interview with Tommy Jones. Uh, hope you hope you enjoyed our show review. Big shout to Norm Duke on his back-to-back titles, though. Really interesting to see him back in the mix and, and doing big things. Uh, Rob, any closing thoughts? You know, I, I, I'm just really, really digging that Tommy Jones interview. Uh, just, you know, how, how great he was, honest and open he was with us. And, you know, um, funny dude, man. I, I've got a chance. I had a chance to hang out with him and his uh, and Dino and, and Darty one year at the World Series for a week in, in the house. And, uh Man, I mean, they should pay. They they should get people to pay to hang out with them because it's a, it's a trip. It, it's it's a great time. It's hilarious. You laugh. You laugh the whole week. I couldn't. I had such a great time in both. So terrible. But it, you know, that, that's my kind of thought. Is great. Yeah, it was a good interview. Yeah, I hope I hope everybody enjoys it. I do. I do think that he was uh, honest and upfront with us and gave some really uh, interesting answers to some of our questions. So. uh that's it, folks. We're going to wrap it up. Give us a follow on social media, as we always say, at Sweep the Rack on all platforms. Email us at sweeptherack at gmail.com. Uh, definitely reach out to us if you have any questions, guest recommendations, uh, topics you'd like to see us discuss. You know, you don't have to be uh, somebody that's a, a known person in the bowling community to reach out to us. We want to hear from the average fans as well. That's who we are. You know, we're the average fans of bowling pretty much. So we want to hear from you guys out there for sure. Uh, anywhere, anyone out there in the bowling world that's interested in being a guest, get at us, DM us, email us, shoot us a text. It's not that hard to get at us. You know how to do it. Uh, Rob, there's been a lot of back and forth on social media with some people lately. I'm hoping we can line up some of these guys as guests. Uh, we might have some really, really good, interesting guests coming on as we go forward. It, we, we've been improving week to week, I feel like. And, uh, you know, obviously it's going to be able to, it's going to be tough to keep that up, but based on our social media interactions, if you guys are paying attention out there, we, we have the possibility of having some really interesting interviews over the next couple of weeks or months. So uh, definitely uh, keep an eye out for that. We're on iTunes folks. So check us out. That's where everybody mainly likes to listen to their podcast. We're also on blog talk radio. So check us out there. Uh, Rob, have a good week, homie. Take it easy. And uh, we'll catch up with everybody next week. All right. Peace later. You are now listening to Sweep the...
The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> all right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.